You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. I don't think they'll ever have the fun that I had that year at 23 years old, going to the White House and the NSC, briefing cabinet members. I mean, you name it, it was just incredible. Three years into her CIA career, Diana Balsinger found herself on point as the sole person working on the Afghanistan account in her department. It was the 1980s. Thereafter, she was acting deputy to the ambassador to the Afghan resistance, a political officer in Islamabad, an analyst at the Counterterrorism Centre, and she received multiple awards, including for her role in investigating the Boston Marathon bombing. She has a serious Afghanistan-Pakistan resume. Al-Qaeda were on her radar from 1990, and she oozes calm measured analysis. Diana Balsinger. So we're going to talk about 9-11 and then we're going to look at the backstory of 9-11 and then walk up to where we are today. But I think just to start off, can you tell us where you were in the morning of September the 11th, 2001, Diana? Oh my, that is a story. To begin with, I actually left the counterterrorism center where I had been following Sunni extremists, including Al-Qaeda, for several years, just a few months before 9-11. At this point, I am in a Master's of Education program, student teaching. I walked to the school on 9-11. It is a Absolute cliche, but it is true. It was a beautiful blue, gorgeous September day. And I was helping the main teacher in the classroom and ducked out for a, I don't even remember what the errand was. And in the teacher's lounge, they had the TV on and somebody had just flown into the World Trade Center, the first airplane, and I knew it was Al-Qaeda. If you ask anybody who had worked the account, 
we all knew right away. And it was a terrible, terrible feeling because, first of all, I felt very, very guilty that I wasn't on the job back in CTC. One of the first things I did was call the office and say, I'll come back, I'll come back, just let me back. And then walked back into the classroom with a big smile, took over a algebra lesson while the uh, my supervisor teacher went to the teacher's lounge to follow the news. And we spent the rest of the day balancing, trying to keep the classroom absolutely normal for the students and running back to the teacher's lounge. First of all, we had so many of our students had parents who worked at the Pentagon, and we actually did lose a parent. A couple of my students, very young girls, did lose their father on American Airlines 77. But we had to go through all the card student emergency information to see whose parents were at risk, who might actually have lost a parent. The second thing was, thank God my father had just retired from the Pentagon, but I knew he went back fairly often for lunches with friends and visiting. My husband was at CIA headquarters, and the TV was speculating about additional airplanes, what their targets might be. And I also was waiting for the phone call back from CTC calling me back, which actually didn't come. It was a totally surreal day on so many different levels. And I was not called back to CTC. I only found out a decade later it was because they knew how much money my husband and I had shelled out for my uh, master's that was out of pocket, and they didn't want to shortchange me. And they also knew, since I had talked with them, that I had had a couple students who lost their father, and I was engaged with their family, and did get in involved in various programs, things like supporting our Muslim students, helping our students and teachers who didn't really understand why do they hate us, teaching kids to write their names in Arabic, learning a little bit about Muslim religion and the Arab culture. So... That was my 9-11, and it was wow. very different from my former colleagues, I do know. And when you said you knew right away, do you mean when the, the first plane hit, or do you mean the second? Oh, the first. The first. Now, I'll admit there was a possibility I, at that point I could have been wrong, but my mind immediately jumped to that conclusion. Remember... I had worked these guys. I had been following them one way or another since 1990. 
And when I resigned in May 2001, it was largely for personal reasons. My husband and I had not been able to find jobs in the same place. I'd get a job in one country and he wouldn't. He'd get a job in another country and I didn't. And after a couple years of that, he absolutely needed to get out of the area. And I had always been interested in teaching. So that was a compromise. But an additional factor was sheer frustration because everybody in CTC knew there was a big one coming and we were not getting attention from the new administration. And that was extremely frustrating for all of us. And tell us a little bit more about the CTC that you left. So one of the things that I love about our podcast is that uh, ranges from people like you who used to work on the desk to the average person on the street that is interested in those topics. So just tell us a little bit more about what the CTC is, what it was and, and how long you were there and what kind of things you were up to. CIA's Counterterrorism Center began the winter of 1985-1986 focusing on Hezbollah, which, if you'll recall, a couple of years ago had bombed the Marine barracks and our embassy annex in Beirut, and at that point had still had multiple U.S. citizens hostage and also had killed, murdered, and tortured Beirut chief of station, William Buckley. So my first encounter with the Counterterrorism Center was as a trainee. I joined in February of 1986, and at that point it was a very, very small group, a handful of people. I would say you'd be talking in dozens rather than scores or hundreds. And... That three-month period, the one thing I'll take out of it, my job as a trainee was creating a sort of cheat sheet book listing every terrorist, international terrorist group on the planet. And I staged a mock contest for CTC members because there was nothing for the letter Q. The irony of ironies that there was no terrorist group for the letter Q. So at the end of my internship, I went on to back to the Afghan branch. This was during the Afghan program and the Reagan administration's focus on driving the Soviets out of Afghanistan, CTC continued to grow throughout that time. I worked with him again in 1993 when, unfortunately, we had a shooting outside of the CIA headquarters that 
killed a couple of our colleagues, including, unfortunately, the brand new bridegroom of three months of my former roommate. They continue to build up. It's a well-documented history, how they created the Alex Center under Michael Scheuer, focusing exclusively on Osama bin Laden. Now, the thing that's worth remembering is almost everybody, when they think of CTC in the 1990s especially, they think of Alex Station, Alex Station, Alex Station. They don't realize this was still focused on the planet. Alex Station was focused on Osama bin Laden. There was another group that I worked with when I joined CTC in 1996 that was focused on Sunni terrorism that, ironically, a lot of what, looking back, we think of now as al-Qaeda, at that point was under that branch. There was still quite a bit of work ongoing on Hezbollah, which, if you'll remember, was still active did a major bombing in Buenos Aires, etc., etc. So it continued to grow. It continued to develop professionally. It continued to build its ties with the rest of the CIA and the IC as a whole. But remember... Again, before 9-11, we were always short of people. There were some incredibly talented people, some incredibly motivated people. And yes, there were some experienced people. I can think of a few towards the end of their careers. But if you look at... Oh, the Looming Tower miniseries, or any of these, you would think that there were three people in CTC. That was not the case. So there were, just to clarify, Alex Station was an outpost within the CTC? It was a group among many. Okay. And for more details, I would encourage your listeners to look at either the 9-11 report or there have been a couple declassified CIA Inspector General reports that talk in more specifics than I really feel safe getting into right here. Okay, no problem. I want to go to the backstory in the not-too-distant future, but... Just just for now, I just want to get back to that day. So when did the call from the CTC come? Or It did not come. I called them and I talked to the deputy chief of Alex Station and I just said, I'm at your service. And I was truly surprised not to be called back. And like I say, it was only a decade later that I discovered they didn't call me back out of generosity to me, (laughs) which I appreciate, but I wish I had known. That whole time you were feeling sore? 
a little mystified since I had lived in Pakistan. I spoke the language. I had worked the account at that point for much longer than most of the people who were working it that day. But to also put things in context, A, I knew I had worked the aftermath of earlier smaller attacks, such as the African embassy bombings. I knew darned well they were working 24-7, not a cliche, but the truth, overwhelmed with incredible demands and the last thing anybody had time to do was make touchy-feely phone calls to former employees. It was not like that. Is there a particular vignette or conversation or experience of, of 9-11, of that specific day that sticks in your mind? Oh, I would say there are two. One was, of course, the student who lost her father and the mother. And I was not in the principal's office for that discussion, but just knowing when the student was called to the office, the other students didn't at that point know what was going on, etc., but I knew she was going to hear that she had just lost her father. And then the second thing was, of course, when I finally was able to get a hold of my husband, and the first thing he told me was that he had volunteered for worldwide availability for anywhere, anything, anytime that he was wanted. And, of course, you know, the first thing I said is, good for you, go for it. And my stomach just dropped because, of course, I knew there was going to be fighting. I knew there was going to be danger. He was an Army veteran. And I had no idea where he'd be sent or what he would be doing. Long story short, in hindsight, all I can say is he is happy and well, and none of my fears came true, for him at least. Thank God. I'm assuming that because you had been tracking this issue, your mind immediately went to Afghanistan. Is that correct? That's where... Bin Laden and his training camps were. And this is the part of the story, you know, another part of the story that I find really fascinating because this wasn't your first rodeo as far as Afghanistan was concerned, Diana, was it? No, it was amusing. I had written a senior thesis back in undergrad on Islamic radical movements in Pakistan next door to Afghanistan. And so when I was hired, the analytical office in what was then the Directorate of Intelligence that 
followed that region, South Asia, chose me to work on their Afghan task force because I had somewhat of a background in that region. And to this day, when I speak with students now as a professor, I tell them every single one of them is more qualified to work at the agency than I was at the day I was hired because I was hired right out of undergrad on the basis of that senior thesis. I had never been to South Asia or the Middle East. I had never studied Urdu, Pashto, any of the other languages. I was lucky enough to be taught down the road. But they brought me in, and at that point, there were two analysts working Afghanistan. The Soviets were in Afghanistan to just place this in time. This was the fall of 1986. The Stinger missile had been introduced a few months earlier. The senior analyst did what was considered to be the important job. He did Soviet influence over Afghanistan. He did the Kabul regime, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. He did the Geneva Accords, the negotiations with the Soviet Union and Pakistan to uh, arrange the details to allow the Soviet withdrawal. I did the Mujahideen. And who would have ever thought that would turn out to be the more historically <laughs> memorable account? So starting the fall of 86, I studied not just the Peshawar Seven, the seven main groups of resistance fighters based in Pakistan that received the bulk of the CIA and U.S. support, but pretty much Afghan culture, Afghan tribal resistance, what was happening in the refugee camps, all things related to Afghanistan that wasn't communist. And so I did that from the fall of 86 through middle of 88 when the Soviet withdrawal got going. And the GS-15, who was doing the important stuff, realized he pretty much no longer had a job or an account there. So... He got a job elsewhere, managing a branch in another office, and suddenly I was the only intelligence analyst in the Directorate of Intelligence working Afghanistan. And just to put things straight, I had been in the IC three years then at that point. Three years out of undergrad, 
that would have made me 23 years old. The vacancy for the GS-15 position that I was filling never got filled because, again, everybody thought Afghanistan was a finished story, done deal. So I hereby apologize to the universe for everything I missed or everything, every mistake I made. I will only plead youth stupidity, ignorance, and absolute overwork. (laughs) That said, it was fun. It also was fascinating. The IC these days is stronger in terms of knowledge, area knowledge, the fact that it's much more diverse. People of South Asian heritage who were born understanding the languages, knowing the cultures, knowing the understandings. It's so much stronger than it was in my day. But I don't think they'll ever have the fun I had that year at 23 years old, going to the White House and the NSC, briefing cabinet members, doing, you know, doing Everything that fell under the job, testifying before Ipsy. I mean, you name it. It was just incredible. Yeah, were you approached because you were doing work on Pakistan or or did you apply and then they picked you up because you had this this experience? Oh, I, I applied. In fact, the irony is I had had no interest in going to work for the CIA. I wanted to be a Foreign Service officer. I took the Foreign Service exams, did shockingly well on the written part, but at that point, their tests were straight out of the classes that I was taking at the time, majoring in international studies. When it got to the oral exams, again, being 20 years old, I passed by such a thin skin of my teeth because, you know, I could just plain couldn't compete with some of these MBAs and lawyers, etc., that I was very, very low on the list, priority list to be hired into the Foreign Service. And this was the same time that Reagan really was starting to throw major money, 1985, major money at the Afghan program and at the CIA as a whole. So I did see an advertisement figure, well, okay, that's a good place to work until either my foreign service appointment comes through or I'll save up some money to go to graduate school. And so I had never intended to actually take the job. And then I had never intended to actually stay more than a year or so. But once I got on board, I loved it. Truly, truly good people, committed people. And the thing to know is, These days, with Afghanistan, 
and the world at large, there's so much cynicism, and a lot of that is justified. I can't second-guess it. There's a long history of mistakes between 1985 and now, or unanticipated consequences. But in 1985, Afghanistan was the good fight. Afghanistan was an occupied country where there truly were millions of refugees. There truly were there was genocide going on. If you look at the number of villages that were bombed out of existence, the number of political killings by the regime, political prisoners, etc., it truly was something that I believed in and we all believed. We were doing something good and... We knew there would be lasting consequences for the Afghan people themselves. But when the Soviets announced their withdrawal, we truly, truly believed this was a victory. And just for our listeners that aren't familiar with the region, just briefly sketch out the region for us. So you do this undergraduate work in Pakistan. And then you find yourself working in Afghanistan and Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's an interesting relationship between them, right? It's a 1500 mile border. The border was imposed by the British and it's not a strict border in the way that many people in the United States might understand the border. It's more porous and, and fluid, right? Very much so. The thing to know at that time and it's not just part of my own story of my work at that point, but also very much sets us up for all of the issues that we've had post 9-11 with the Taliban, etc., is that border was very porous. But in addition to that, the Pashtun ethnic group, the Durand line that formed the border, ran right through the middle of the tribal areas that members of the same tribe belonged to both sides. So there has always been not just massive smuggling going on between the two countries, but also just massive intermarriage, massive travel. You have villages even that some of the fields that they work are one side of the borders. Some of the fields they work are the other side. You have nomads that their summer camps and their winter camps cross the border. So in addition to all of that, with the Soviet invasion and the massively bombing villages that supported resistance fighters, conquering cities, of course, looking to arrest members of previous governments, you had roughly 3 million Afghans going into Pakistan as refugees, another 2 million Afghans going into Iran. And those 3 million 
Afghans in Pakistan, the bulk of them may have settled in refugee camps, but they didn't really stay there. If you had family in Pakistan, you went to live with your family. So you had Afghan refugees moving into Karachi, starting to take over some businesses. For example, the trucker business always had been heavily Pashtun, along with uh, another ethnic group, the Mahajars. So suddenly you had a lot more Pashtuns looking to be drivers. You had a lot of Afghans working as traders, starting to not just work with Pakistani traders, but compete with them. You had, frankly, a lot more people. Towns like Peshawar that suddenly doubled and tripled and quadrupled in size, and all of the new people were Afghans who had some tribal relations, but at the same time were also viewed as interlopers, were also poor. Some of them ended up as beggars. And then what also happened, you move into the later part of the 1980s, and the Kabul regime, supported by the Soviets, started bombing campaigns in the marketplaces. And so suddenly, you've also got massive ethnic tensions because nobody knew this Afghan who is working the stall next to me, is he going to bomb me out? Now, obviously, a lot of that was prejudice, but that is a real contributor to instability in Pakistan. And the crying shame is from visiting Peshawar 1987 to 1988 to when I arrived in 1990, it already, that town had really transformed and not for the better. And then for my embassy tour in 1992, the country as a whole grew more and more unstable with the arms that at that point were starting to, well, not just starting to, had been flowing in from Afghanistan and had been siphoned off from the flow to the Afghan resistance throughout the 1980s. The aftermath of the bombings, the bombings didn't stop when the Kabul regime actually fell. It just kept going with other groups. It just was a very, very bad scene all around. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because... I think one of the interesting things about that period is the role that the Soviet-Afghan war had on transforming Islam and that region of the world. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that touches on a lot of things that you're interested in or that you have direct experience of. Could you talk a little bit more about the way that Afghanistan or Pakistan were and, and then the effect that 
the Soviet-Afghan war and its unintended consequences had on that borderland region? Okay, I'm not going to go into a long lecture with the names of different camps, Burrell v. etc. <laughs> what I will simply say is traditional Islam as practiced in Pakistan and Afghanistan was very different from what people imagine is Saudi Wahhabi or what you tend to picture as the Taliban. It was a folk religion. People were deeply devout, deeply pious, but they also had lived side by side with Hindus for centuries. And so they had picked up a lot of practices. And they also had, it was more colorful. If you went to a graveyard, you would see the graves decorated with banners. You would see holy trees where a saint had sat and taught centuries before with lots and lots of banners flying from it because a woman who wanted a son would go and pray to the saint at that tree and leave a banner or an offering. You had melas, which were festivals with music and dancing, and the music would be hymns, but if you look at some of the traditional hymns, oh my goodness, some of the old ghazals are pretty darn raunchy or talking lots and lots and lots about being drunk. And it's all symbolic for love of the beloved who is truly Allah above. In the 1970s, Saudi Arabia started funding education, not just madrasas, but offering money to lots of mosques, offering money to help bring in new textbooks for the public education system. And what had always been a minority in the region started becoming more and more powerful, which was what people today would picture as the Islamic religion, where it's pure, no images, no alcohol, which did used to be legal in Pakistan and Afghanistan, by the way. More women, more covering, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so there really was a tension between the two of them when Zeal Huck, who was the chief of army staff, seized power. He actually followed that brand of Wahhabi-influenced Islam, and he started enforcing it. Long story short, that's how you also get a lot of, not just the violence increasing inside in Pakistan, because several of these groups that were founded by the Saudi money and with the Saudi influence started going after Pakistani Shias, 
who before then, roughly 20% of the population and had included, I mean, Prime Minister Budo Sr. probably was a Shia. His wife certainly was. And so all of a sudden you had sectarian violence and fighting in Pakistan, but you also had Saudi and other Arabs not just funding the Afghan resistance and funding the people who agreed with them, but you got these Arab volunteers, and this is before any of us had ever heard the name Osama bin Laden, but people like him, who would go into Afghanistan and then get into massive fights with Afghan villagers or Afghan fighters because what are you doing decorating this grave? You know, how dare you? That's totally un-Islamic. And for the Afghans, this is our martyr. Of course we're going to honor our martyr. So it was the beginning of what we saw in spades with the Taliban and today. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. You mentioned the Peshawar 7. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit more about who they were? And you also referenced that there were many groups beyond the Peshawar 7. And as I understand it, the Peshawar 7 were a creation of Pakistan. One is a way to try to just make sense of all the various groups, but also, secondly, to play their own game inside Pakistan. Could you tell us a little bit more about the city of Peshawar, how you found it, and the various Mujahideen groups, which were your daily bread and butter during this period? Well, let's flash back to 1973, which was when the king of Afghanistan, Zahir Shah, was ousted. And the follow-on government was run by his cousin, was socialist-influenced. That socialist government actually inspired several Islamist leaders who 
again, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia starting to make contacts in Pakistan at that time. It was also doing the same in Afghanistan. Several of these Afghan students, really, fled to Pakistan rather than go to jail under Dawood and the follow-on regimes. Dawood's regime also started contesting the border much more aggressively with Pakistan. So there, as far as Pakistan was concerned, there was a real incentive to support these Afghan dissidents that had fled to Peshawar, including people like Gubuddin Hekmatyar, for example, who, when he had been a student at the University of Kabul, the rumor is, I've never seen absolute proof, but the rumor among people who were there is he was going around throwing acid in the faces of women who weren't fairly fully veiled. Sayaf, who was another one who actually studied in Saudi Arabia. Yunus Khalis, Burhanuddin Rabani. These people were the four that we called Islamists. They truly wanted to reform Islam and reform Afghan society in an Islamic way. But they also set up a relationship with Pakistan's intelligence service in the early 70s. So when the Soviets invaded, of course, it made great sense for ISI, the Inter-Service Intelligence Directorate of Pakistan, to keep on supporting it. In the meantime, there were other more traditional Pakistani leaders, such as Gailani, Mojadadi, who were basically hereditary saints in the old religion. Very rich, very westernized. I sometimes saw them in the press referred to as the Gucci gorillas because they pretty much had either Italian or British London tailors. So those were the seven that, to my knowledge, and I was never a CIA DO operative, to my knowledge, and from everything I've read, received the overwhelming bulk of the CIA support, which was funneled through Pakistan. There actually were hundreds, if not thousands, of local village leaders, tribal leaders, clan leaders, who rose up all over Afghanistan even before the Soviet invasion. In the year before the Soviet invasion, this is in fact why the Soviet invaded, to oppose the Kabul regime, because the Kabul regime basically came on full-on Stalinist immediately. It's crazy because you can find documents now from Moscow of the Politburo and their representatives begging these people, slow down, you can't change a society so quickly. But going in, 
forcing people to send their girls to school, forcing land reform, etc., etc. Most of those fighters ended up joining one of the seven because that's the only way they could get arms. The Pakistanis allocated the arms to gain control over that huge movement. There were still people like Ismail Khan in Herat who drew heavy support from Iran, who didn't join one of the seven more than tangentially. He sort of signed up with Rabbani's group, but never really. And then Ahmed Shah Massoud up in the north, who was from a different ethnic group, and he drew very heavily from the French. And Peshawar, just briefly, that's a border city in Pakistan, right? It's also surrounded by Pakistan's tribal areas where tribal law still holds sway. So it always has been very different from, for example, cities like Lahore in Pakistan's south that... Oh my goodness, what a center of culture. Peshawar, well, I'd say, picture Star Wars, the Star Wars bar where everybody meets. Whether you're a trader, whether you're a smuggler, whether you're a spy, whether you're an aid worker. I remember one evening, for example, going to the American club to see a German employee of a French aid organization doing Spanish flamenco dance. And that was pretty much normal. (laughs) So it was a bit of a slightly Wild Westy border type city, lots of interesting characters around. Very much so. And that would of course, include the Europeans as well as the Pakistanis, Afghans, and Arabs. But I will say what's probably most interesting to your listeners is the growing Arab community. Because the thing is, going into Afghanistan to fight is scary. There are people shooting and bombing. You could get killed. Worse, you could get very bad dysentery. You could get blisters on your feet. Everything is uphill both ways. And the Afghans themselves usually didn't really welcome foreign volunteers because they decided early foreign volunteers were wusses. And if you think of the conditions they lived in, and pretty much a lot of the time living on rice and chapatis, three meals a day while they're in the field, they were right. So hundreds and hundreds of Arabs set up headquarters in Peshawar rather than Afghanistan, and that's where they ran, whether it was Mahtab al-Kidmat, which was Abdallah Zam's aid agency, which he was a Palestinian 
And yes, he very definitely was preaching continued jihad. Let's not stop with Afghanistan. And that's where Osama bin Laden first set up. That's where a whole lot of Muslim and Arab aid organizations set up that funneled millions of dollars, preferably to the people willing to carry on not just Afghan jihad, but do it in the Wahhabi sense. So that really fueled a lot of cultural change. What also was going on at the same time in the Afghan refugee camps. The thing to remember, Afghan rural culture, you did not have women sitting all day in their houses, fully covering their faces, never going out, never doing anything, other than maybe the richest, most important family or two in the village, because You needed those women out in the field working if the family is going to survive. It was in the Peshawar refugee camps and the camps around the tribal areas that were run by organizations such as Gubatin Hekmatyars and heavily influenced by these Arab aid organizations where all of a sudden women who had spent their whole lives Yes, with their hair covered. Yes, they maybe cover their face if a stranger showed up, but otherwise moving relatively freely, all of a sudden going into full purda, living under the conditions we later associate with the Taliban. That's where a lot of that really started being imposed on Afghan culture, especially a generation that grew up And a lot of them joined the Taliban, who grew up only seeing this. This is really fascinating. And when you were working the Afghan issue, who were like your interlocutors across the government? I know that you you mentioned that you went to testify and went to the White House and so forth. But give us a sense of any other people that you worked with that were more of a horizontal connection. So was there someone at the State Department that you were working with? Was there people at the the DOD, people in the the DO? Yeah, help us understand your day-to-day, what was coming in and what was going out, and who were you kind of speaking to? On the State Department, I worked both with the desk and most closely of all, almost on a daily basis, with a wonderful, wonderful woman named Eliza Van Hollen, who had so much more of a background on South Asia than I did. And she had the most incredible generosity of spirit to help and support my learning and education. She actually had a, her husband was named Christopher Van Hollen, and her son is now a member of Senate, the Senate. Very, very impressive family. And then 
I did work with the State Department desk. I obviously met comparatively frequently with analysts in the DOD, analysts, other parts of the IC, especially when we got together to work on national intelligence estimates. Those are community-wide products rather than anything individual. Okay. And, I mean, when you came to this, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience of finding yourself as the point person for for this issue as a 23-year-old? Tell us about some of the people that you met or some of the things that you were involved in. All I can say is the bulk of the work came after Jalalabad. January, February 1989, Benazir Bhutto at that point was the Prime Minister of Pakistan, and she decided she wanted a really big Mujahideen victory. I think she was going on a trip to Saudi Arabia or something like that. So the Muj were ordered to take the eastern Afghan city of Jalalabad, and it didn't work. Instead, they fell to pieces fighting each other. And that really was the start of my briefing circuit and my greatest exposure to senior individuals is they wanted to know, A, what went wrong, And basically what went wrong was pure and simple. Every one of those groups saw the end game coming and they wanted to make sure that their rivals didn't end up on top. And they all wanted to know what would happen next. And ironically, we're getting into the point where, A, nobody knew what was happening next. We did believe that the Kabul regime was going to fall comparatively quickly. And I can tell you exactly the three reasons why we were wrong. And that was an intelligence failure I was deeply a part of. One, we did not expect and nobody expected that the Soviets would launch the biggest airlift since the Berlin airlift to keep the Kabul regime fully supplied. We underestimated how quickly the Muj would break down. And I should say we, I will say I, underestimated how very quickly the Muj would break down. I assumed they would wait until they won. That was a mistake. And third was we had a whole lot of reporting from every source you can think of, and especially, especially press, saying that everybody in Kabul was making secret deals to basically open the door to the Mujahideen, that the second that the Soviets left, 
they were going to switch sides. What we didn't get was a, a lot of those people were saying it because they were playing both sides. Rather than simply believing what they were saying, there was no reporting on these same people telling the PDPA, yes, I'm with you. I will support you to the death. But second, Jalalabad changed everything with the kind of fighting and there were some real human rights abuses associated with the Muj activity at Jalalabad. Lots of innocent civilians they killed. And that changed a whole lot of minds in Kabul. It's one thing to surrender to somebody who you don't agree with, but if you surrender, you're more likely to stay alive. It's another thing to surrender to somebody you're afraid is going to gouge your eyes out. Totally different universe. So that prediction was very wrong, and I did end up testifying why we got it wrong. I will say it was vastly amusing. Also, another monthly set of briefings I did for, well, he's gone now, Stephen Solars, who had the subcommittee on Asia and the Pacific. One month I went in and, man, that man made me feel good. He told me that, yes, the D.O. gets all the praise. He wants me to know. He also thinks analysts also count as American heroes. And I left there feeling great. The exact next month, he told me that I was so blankety-blank incompetent, I lacked the awareness to recognize I didn't have a blankety-blank clue what I was talking about. Put me in my place. Kept me humble. (laughs) And when did you pick up the Urdu, Diana? Because you don't have it when you join up, but you later acquire it. So tell us a little bit more about the Urdu and tell us about your time working alongside Peter Thompson, the special envoy to the Afghan resistance? Well, they're connected. I got a chance to spend a couple years at the State Department, actually not at the State Department, in the State Department as a foreign service officer. I was a political officer in the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad with the portfolio of religious affairs, which made a lot of sense if you think going back what I had just spent the past few years doing. Before the tour, I did do six months of intensive full-time Urdu training, and then I continued the Urdu training the whole two years that I was living in Pakistan. When the Gulf War came up, All of the embassies in the Muslim world were forced to draw down to very, very skeleton crews. Once I got to Washington, D.C., I had no job for the duration of the Gulf War. Peter Thompson's 
deputy had just moved on to another position. So he interviewed me and he hired me for the duration of the Gulf War. Once the Gulf War evacuations were over, I would go back to my job in Islamabad. Of course, what was my first job with Peter Thompson? Going to Islamabad. So you don't ever want to do the paperwork involved of an emergency wartime evacuation from a post doing your per diem while you're at that post. (laughs) But our number one mission while we were in Islamabad during the Gulf War was President Bush, and this was, of course, Bush Sr., wanted as many countries as possible in the Gulf War coalition. Unfortunately, one of the things that had been happening through the fall of 1991 is, remember earlier how I mentioned that there were some Islamist groups that received U.S. weapons, U.S. funding, etc., through Pakistan, but were Islamist, also closely tied to Saudi Arabia? Well, three of them, Burhanuddin Rabbani, Hikmatyar, and Sayyaf, came out supporting, very publicly supporting Saddam Hussein. And this was tremendously embarrassing, not just for the United States, but for Saudi Arabia. And so our job was to try to get the other Mujahideen leaders and Pakistan to agree to join the Gulf War Coalition. We had 308 Mujahideen who did travel to Saudi Arabia. I don't believe they actually fought. My guess is that they did support work. They did the lesser pilgrimage. They did a lot of fundraising. But officially, the Afghan Mujahideen were part of President Bush's coalition. I just wondered, now that we we started with 9-11 and then we walked backwards, I just wondered how you would connect the events of the 80s and early 90s back forward to 9-11 because lots of different people have done it in lots of different ways but you have the advantage of being someone who has studied it at the macro level but also was a participant in various ways so help us understand how you go from those events of the 80s and 90s through to where we are now or through to 9-11. It's heartbreaking, actually, because, of course, there's a direct line. I totally dispute those who point to, oh, the CIA supported bin Laden or this or that. No, there was no connection. The CIA did not support any Arab fighters, period, end of subject. But... Here's the thing. Afghanistan 
became a great jihad. Afghanistan in the Muslim world was an example of a great Muslim victory. They drove out the Soviets. That right there was inspiring, especially if you look at it alongside the Iranian Revolution in 1979, where the Iranians drove out the Americans, quote-unquote. So you've got Muslims driving out Americans from Iran, driving out the other superpower from Afghanistan. We can do it. So inspiring. Secondly, remember how we talked about Peshawar being this great meeting ground. It was a melting pot. There was plenty of Sunni Islamist terrorism before Arabs started showing up in Peshawar. The Egyptian Islamic Jihad in Egypt, this group often Indonesia, what have you. Afghanistan was what brought them together in Peshawar to compare notes, to get training, to get inspired, to learn from each other, to organize, and yes, eventually to create a central organization, Al-Qaeda. The thing is, one way to look at it is a fraternity. Even if you didn't formally join Al-Qaeda, you met with guys who joined Al-Qaeda. You met with guys who were from the UK, from Argentina, I'm not kidding, from Saudi Arabia, etc. You had a fraternity of Afghan veterans, whether they fought or not, they supported it, they were there. And the thing is, these veterans, a lot of them, then went home to their home countries, and some of them may not have intended terrorism immediately, but if they couldn't find a job because their government didn't trust them and threw them in jail because they had contact, allegedly, with other terrorists, that's one way to radicalize them if they hadn't already been radicalized. A lot of them, though, went back to their home countries with the intention of setting up their own jihad. We won one jihad, let's do another. And... They not only have the status of having been there in Afghanistan, whether they really went into Afghanistan or not, but they have the motivation, they have the contacts, they have the funding. So I don't believe we would have had 9-11 had we not had, not even the Afghan war, so much as the Peshawar scene. One of the things that I find fascinating is thinking about the Soviet-Afghan war, so it's not just about the CIA, right? It's the ISI are part of the story, Saudi intelligence are part of the story, of obviously the Afghans themselves, the refugees, all the countries surrounding Afghanistan. They're trying to put their thumb on the scale as well during all of this. 
if you look at it objectively, although it's terrible, it seems like a very almost logical thing to happen. Afghanistan, I believe, during the 80s has more refugees than anywhere else in the world. During the Soviet-Afghan war, between the Soviets, and obviously they're very culpable for actually invading the country, but also the West and the ISI and Saudi intelligence for funding the Mujahideen. And then Afghanistan, I believe it becomes the most heavily armed country in the world. You can see why any kind of structure or scaffolding disintegrates and why there's this long period of instability that, that continues up until today. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Unfortunately, that's true, every step of it. I would say what the one incredibly important thing missing from that list is what happens to a country when you totally undermine the culture and the way of life. If you're talking millions and millions of refugees, and of course there were more refugees who stayed inside the country than outside, people who totally lost their way of life, lost their source of a living, lost their local leadership. Remember something, the villages had their own patterns of leadership. What happens when suddenly somebody who's possibly the traditional village leader, quite often not, is the one who's getting the arms affiliated with a resistance group, and suddenly he's the one not just with the arms to enforce his authority, but he's the one that if you want to join the jihad, you obey. What happens when you have, okay, 7 million refugees? Well, those refugees in the resistance camps in Pakistan and Iran are having children. Those children are growing up in a refugee camp where, again, they have no exposure to traditional leadership. It's the resistance party that is running it, and the resistance party is preaching jihad, 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 jihad. They're not learning how do you plow a field? How do you do a craft? And yes, UNICEF and a lot of charities did go in and try to do some kind of education, some kind of teaching. I remember visiting rooms of little boys hammering away on heels, learning how to make boots. But in general, these kids grew up playing in alleys. How do you then rebuild a country out of that? Especially when the richer layer, the people who had the money, the education, the pre-Soviet government experience, by that point, definitely there were a fair number of patriots who did go back and try to rebuild. But a whole lot of them at that point, had teenagers who had become Americans, had become Brits or Germans, etc., 
and weren't going to go back and start all over. And just to bring it up to the present day, a lot of these issues are eerily still on the scene. Afghan stability, what happens when a power that has been there withdraws? What are your thoughts looking at the scene now, 20 years after 9-11 and 20 years after the beginning of the war in Afghanistan? It breaks my heart because, again, the thing to know is the Afghan people, historically, I mean, yes, there's always been some infighting, etc. But in general, warm, hospitable, a rich culture. I mean, there's so much good that's been lost. And I don't see the way back. Remember how the Kabul regime survived some three years after the Soviet withdrawal? I would say there were two things that allowed the Kabul regime to do that. And three years is not a very long time. One was, of course, the Soviet airlift that was so huge. Even if the United States wanted to do that kind of an airlift to support the Ashraf Ghani government, I don't think it's possible. We're on the other side of the planet. And we would have to, of course, go through somebody's airspace. Secondly, the other main thing that allowed the communist regime to hang on for three years was, of course, that the Mujahideen started a civil war against each other. I don't think we can expect the Taliban to be that helpful. So, yes, I am pessimistic for the current government. I'm pessimistic for a lot of the current gains. Where I have hope is Never underestimate Afghan courage, and that includes the Afghan women, some of the strongest, bravest people I have ever met were Afghan women, and they are willing to speak for themselves. The fact that they have had 20 years of access, however imperfect, to education, access, however imperfect, to employment, to women's organizations, etc. I don't think you can erase it in a day. I do expect, unfortunately, a lot of fighting to get to whatever the new normal. How has this relationship, which has sometimes been on and off, but How has this relationship with that part of the world changed you as a person and, say, the CIA? First part, there is a lost innocence for me, for the agency, for the country, probably the world. In the 1980s, we genuinely believed that we were doing something good. And I will say, of course, 
there were some individuals who looked at it as, yay, we're killing Soviets. But I would say the biggest motivation, and I do know for me too, was we are helping an occupied people. And of course, it's going to end up well. And one one thing, in fact, that's worth mentioning is at the beginning of the, I have read the documents from the discussions with Carter, President Carter and the DCI, and the CIA initially, actually, from the DCI down, was a little bit hesitant to get involved in Afghanistan because they were afraid all they would be doing would be helping Afghans to die. And it was only when they realized the Afghans were going to fight no matter what, and then realized that, wait a minute, maybe there's a chance that they actually can drive the Soviets out, that everything got very gung-ho and the program exploded so big. Now, obviously, since then, we've had much bigger programs, if you look in the wake of 9-11 and the Iraq War, etc. I still believe most people think they're doing a good thing, that they're standing up for U.S. interests, protecting whatever it is they believe they're protecting, whether it's freedom or whatever. But it's harder to believe that with that clear, unquestioned naivete. We wanted to do the right thing. We believed we were doing the right thing. And I can't begin to tell you the unbelievable joy that so many of us felt the day the last Soviet soldier crossed over that bridge back into the Soviet Union. And it's not that we expected everything would magically be perfect in Afghanistan after that, but we believed we had given the Afghan people a chance at a good future. Can you remember where you were when that happened? Did all of you working this issue have a party or something? Oh, yes. It was <laughs> It was an incredible party, I will say yeah. that. It was down in the hallway where the earliest version of what became the CIA museum was set up. And they say alcoholic beverages... Actually, alcoholic beverages are illegal inside federal office buildings, but nobody told the guy with the champagne. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, that's probably a good place to close off. Well, thanks ever so much for your time, Diane. An absolute pleasure. And frankly, given how many people you've interviewed who... I really, really respect. I consider this a tremendous honor, too. Anytime. I love having you on. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, 
please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.